Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Naomi Hirahara to the podcast today. Naomi is an Edgar Award-winning author of multiple traditional mystery series and noir short stories. Her Maserai mysteries feature a Los Angeles gardener and Hiroshima survivor who solves crimes. The Japanese translation of her seventh and final Maserai mystery, Hiroshima Boy, is nominated for two awards in Japan. Her first historical mystery is Clark and Division, which follows a Japanese-American family's move to Chicago in 1944 after being released from a California wartime detention center. The book recently won a Mary Higgins Clark Mystery Award and a Lefty Historical Mystery Award. A former journalist with the Rafu Shimpo newspaper, Naomi has also written numerous nonfiction history books and curated exhibitions. She's also written a middle grade novel, A Thousand and One Cranes. Welcome to the podcast, Naomi. Thank you for having me, Julie. Oh, I can't wait to have this conversation. Let's start where I normally start uh, in these conversations and, and talk about, you know, when you thought to yourself, I want to write a novel. You know, my story is very similar to many others in that I was a voracious reader. Um, my my mother's from Japan. My dad was born here, but raised in Japan. So I went to the library to learn about the outside world and to interpret that actually for my parents. I'm the, the firstborn. And um, so I wanted to write stories as well. And my first story, you know, what I would do in um, elementary school is, you know, those spelling words, instead of just writing a sentence, I try to write a whole story. And um, I got some positive affirmation from some elementary school teachers. And that kind of started the ball rolling. And um, interesting enough, I was really drawn to stories of the American South, even though I'd never been there. Um, but I think there were a lot of um, books at that time that was set there, some historicals. And I think also the fact that um, many of these books had um, Southern dialect in them it was like mm -hmm. non-standard English. It was something I was familiar with, maybe not that di particular dialect, but this play on words, this kind of um, interpretation of like the oral language. So um, I began writing stories with Southern characters and I even have some of these books that I made on three by five cards with different, like a family from the South and each little kid had their own way of writing. And, you know, it's kind of interesting looking back because I think even as an adult, like, a you know, as, as a golden girl that I am, you know, the, what I was attempting to do when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old is kind of similar. 
Um, but I think in terms of really thinking, and I, I attempted to write novels, you know, in those big stretches of summer. Um, back then, it wasn't like we were so overscheduled. We didn't have a lot of classes. Right. We just had this, you know, two months to do anything. And I would just sit and try to write a novel. Um, but I think it became more serious, probably, you know, in high school, I thought about it. In college, I thought about it. And when um, I graduated from college and I, I studied in Japan for a year, I was thinking I was an international relations major. And, you know, what are, What am I going to do with that kind of, you know, bachelor's degree? You know, a lot of times people go off to become lawyers. And that's something mm -hmm. I considered. Um, the only problem is I don't like conflict. <laughs> so that's probably <laughs> not a good profession for me. And it was actually in Japan where I play. Uh, we had to the program I was in. We had to do a, a presentation at the end. And I decided to write a short story in Japanese. So, and that really kind of hooked me. Like that's really my passion. So, um, so when I came back to the States, I kind of embarked, you know, on writing and with a dream someday that I would write a novel. And did you take uh, writing classes or courses or did you, you know, how did you develop your craft? Um, I, you know, in college, it was really interesting. I went to Stanford and David Henry Wong, the playwright, I know you have a, a playwriting background. Um, he had attended there. He's a little bit older than me, but he had established a Asian American theater project. And so actually I started act, you know, I, if you see me in person, I'm, you know, under five feet tall. But in this context of this particular theater project in, at a school, at a college, I could actually do things. So, and I, I started my acting career um, being a ribbon dancer behind a scrim. It was um, for uh, uh, David Henry Wong had adapted, uh, uh, I think it was a Kawabata short story, a Japanese writer short story, House of the Sleeping Beauty. So, um, yeah, so I danced with a ribbon, <laughs> but then oh, I love that. But then uh, my, I think it was my senior year or my junior year of college. It must have been my junior years. I actually got a lead in a play um, written by uh, Momoko Oko Iko, who became actually a friend later in life, and she had written a play called Gold Watch. And um, so, in other words. Um, surprisingly at a school like Stanford, there was somewhat of a creative community. We had a lot of musicians as well who became pro professional performers um, after they left the campus. And so I think it did plant a seed that, oh, you know, and I wrote some short stories that, that, that was the time where we were just starting to do things like at coffee houses. So I, you know, unfortunately, um, it wasn't a time where we did a lot of videotaping. You know, I think somebody has a clunky, you know, I don't think it's, I think it's pre-VHS, some a tape of me actually reading a short story. But I think, uh, yeah, it was, it, it planned, maybe I didn't think I could write a book that would be published, but there was definitely, oh, I can write a story and maybe 
it doesn't have to be, you know, a story about these people in the South that I don't know, but actually something that's a little bit closer to home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting um, transition to almost give yourself permission to write a story that resonates more with you than with these characters who we stereotype in so many ways. Right. Well, I, I don't think I thought it was really possible when I was young. I mean, it's so different today with um, so many diverse stories for um, children. I mean, we didn't have it. You know, I think we're of the same generation, Julie. And there was no, there was like the six Chinese brothers. There was Ping, the like Chinese duck. You know, there was there was a few um, there. There were were a few short uh books, you know, written from, but it was more like from a Japanese perspective, not so much a Japanese American one. So I just didn't think it was really possible, but certainly I think in the eighties, um, during the time I was going to college, they were having hearing commission hearings for Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated. So I think Mm -hmm. there was this wrestling of what had happened to Japanese Americans during Mm -hmm. World War II So Mm -hmm. I think all of these things kind of coalesced for me and um, certainly kind of maybe I didn't see the door wide open, but I saw a crack or at least uh, necessity uh, for this particular story to be told. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, And I think let's just spend a second on talking about this in the 80s. I mean, I remember this as well, but we started to talk about and reckon with the fact that there were internment camps in this country during um, World War II, which was 40 years prior. Of course, now the 80s are 40 years (laughs) later than that. But it took that long, and it's still not a history that we talk about or that we recognize as as much because of, of how we want to position ourselves and think about ourselves as a country. I think we're in a reckoning now where we're coming to terms with a lot of things. But how did that um, particular time, because you wrote a whole series um, or you've written Clark and Divisions about that time. I mean, you know, how did you feel about that it cracking open, but also um, having conversations that that involved, you know, people with Japanese American heritage and, and, you know, something to resonate? Well, you know, to be honest, um, it's kind of interesting I'm a kind of outsider to this experience because, you know, I'm if if someone were to look at me, they would would think, oh, she's an insider to this community. But I was a little on the outside because my parents were in Hiroshima at the time of World War II. I mean, they're dealing with their own kind of hellish situation. Um, But my father was an American. He was born here, but happened to be taken to Hiroshima and then returned back after World War II. So we have relatives on his side of the family who were in the camps. And um, so it was kind of on the periphery of my own Mm -hmm. personal history. But um, I think, yeah, going and, and we had, you know, Nisei means second generation Japanese American. We had a lot of, my parents had a lot of Nisei friends. So I was kind, you know, it was kind of floating up there. I kind of was aware of it when I was, you know, up to high school. But I think in college, that's when, you know, I took a civil liberties class um, in the law department. 
And um, I think then I, you know, then I, it was an awakening for me, you know, and I Mm -hmm. think sometimes people say, well, if you're a certain ethnicity, you're going to know everything about that ethnicity. And that's not true. Um, There has to be uh, for all people, I think um, a decision that you want to uh, dive deeper into that and you have to be intentional about read. You know, I, I am a history nerd. So, you know, for me personally, I just like diving deep and reading about um, these surprises, you know, because I think if you don't know of what happened in the past and these kind of hidden histories, then you make a lot of assumptions. Uh, and yeah. um, I think through history, there's so many amazing people. You know, there's so many amazing writers that have passed on that really forged the way. And I get inspiration from hearing about those particular stories, but yeah. And then I think was what was probably the most seminal was um, I got after I um, spent time in Japan for a year, I returned back and uh, started working at the Rafu Shinpo. Rafu is the old name for Los Angeles and Shinpo means newspaper it was started in 1903 and believe it or not, it's still in business. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's like a miracle wow. <laughs> because yeah. so many mainstream newspapers have, you know, gone away or gone totally digital and this still have some, you know, uh, print copies that are given out to subscribers. So yeah, that's when, um, so I worked there in the eighties, I left and then became editor in the nineties. So Again, you know, this redress and reparations movement was coming through and there was a lot of talk of, you know, how do people get payment? You know, um, do we there was a Mm -hmm. lot of discussion. So so in that in that way, I kind of entered into the story and interviewed so many people. So that's how um, so it wasn't like this. (laughs) it, It. I just knew about this history magically. It was actually mm-hmm. had spent many years digging and documenting. Yeah. I think for all of us, it's worth, even if you think, you know, <laughs> to actually explore history. Cause you know, we get told stories by our relatives and then you look at the history and you realize, you know, that maybe you didn't understand the whole story or context or, or the rest of it. So you started in journalism, and you said that you wanted to be a lawyer for a period of time. Those are different kinds of writing <laughs> and a different training. When you wanted to go into fiction, did you have to make a flip? And also, why crime fiction? Was it always crime fiction, or were you always, were you, you know, exploring other genres as well? Well, you know, I did the journalism because I needed to make money. Um, that was yeah. my first because it's not like, oh, I want to be a novelist. I'm going to make money. So all those years I worked at the Rough Shinpo, I would drive, you know, and in L.A., driving from one point to another takes a lot of effort. And yes. um, I went to UCLA Extension and I took novel writing classes. So I didn't really intend on write, you know, my first novel, Mas- Masarai novel, some of the big bocce took 15 years before it was published. And so I had started it while I was working as a reporter. I, you know, my heart of hearts was to write a book. That's really what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. Um, and I struggled and it, 
it didn't really turn into a mystery until probably the last, you know, three to five years that I was working mm-hmm. on it. I even went to a writing workshop. I mean, I left my job. I was so devoted to this book that um, I took a fellowship in, of all places, Wichita, Kansas, um, to work on it. And even after that, it wasn't quite ready. It wasn't a, a mystery at that time either. And then it kind of, um, I had, the book was told in two voices, two people's voices. And one was of this elderly gardener. And my writing mentor was telling me, you know, Naomi, actually this Masarai character is so, the voice is so much stronger than the other character, which was a doctor from Japan. And so I had to, you know, this is after I spent like 10 years and was in Kansas. So I had to extricate, I had to remove the other character and just go solely with Moss. And actually it was my grandmother who had gifted me with a story like during, because Moss was an atomic bomb survivor. I was motivated by my own family's history and especially for my father, because he was an American who happened to be in Japan. And I thought an American atomic bomb survivor, you know, in some ways I could remove all the politics and kind of just mm-hmm. look into the like this human experience. And my grandmother, um, she, you know, survived the bomb and she saw, I mean, this is kind of gross, but morbid, but this is crime, <laughs> but she saw a, a dead body, a cadaver. It, it was decomposing, but you had to wear like a name tag um, at that time because they knew that Hiroshima was close to a naval base and something might happen. So she uh, uh, drew a picture. You know, we don't have iPhones, right? And she, uh, you know, submitted it to NHK because they were collecting all these um, drawings of you know, from survivors and the family, the, the, the family that was related to that person who had died uh, was able to identify, you know, that was, they, they didn't know what had happened to him. So I know for some reason, what my grandma did and, you know, uh, it's kind of like a crime photo. It just stayed in my mind. And I go, Mm -hmm. I need to work this into a book and then it kind of morphed into this mystery. I loved mysteries. Um, you know, I I love British mysteries. Uh, um, but I also, while I was working on this, who was coming up was like people like Walter Mosley. Um, I was unaware of Chester Himes. And, and so I came to him later and then started reading him. And then when I started seeing these African-American detective novelists, I go, oh, they're doing something that I kind of want to do. It's not only the mystery itself, but they're um, creating this like social milieu. They're, sh- they're showing like racial injustice. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, it kind of opened my eyes. It, you know, like I, I've kind of felt like these people were walking beside me. You know, I wasn't, yeah, so it was helpful to to kind of feel them, you know, knocking elbows. It's like, okay, you know, th- this is a possibility. So that's when it became a mystery. And I will say when that happened, 
it became much easier for me to find an agent. I mean, it's still a struggle, but after I got representation, actually the selling of the book went pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, 15 years is a long time. Sounds like a long time, but learning how to write a novel is a, is a journey, you know? Um, and frequently people will put that first novel or it ends up in a draw or, you know, um, but you, was that the novel that you sold? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, wow. it, I probably had, I had rewritten the beginning like 33 times probably and the whole book several times, you know, the title itself had gone through a lot of incarnations, but yeah, you know, it, it, I think it's very individual. Like for some people, like probably for most people, they should put that first book aside and work on something else. But I think for me, the motive, I mean, I was very motivated. This was a very personal mm-hmm. story, uh-huh. you know, I, and it's from a 60, you know, something point of view. And I attempted to write it when in my twenties. So it was very ambitious in that way. So I probably mm-hmm. had to personally grow, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to tell that particular story. But yeah, I think for some people who feel like they have to tell a certain story, like they have to do that before they die, you know, maybe it is, you know, every, I don't want to, I don't want anything I say to be necessarily prescriptive because I think we all have to find our path. But for me, it was like sticking to Masarai, you know, and at mm-hmm. that right now, it's kind of cool to have older characters, but right, you know, back then. And also no. to write from a male point, I mean, it's, you know, I think people yeah. are looking more for since I'm a woman, you know, female point of view, young, you know, that would have been a better selling point at that time. Yeah, well, you didn't make it easy on yourself, but you told the story that was in your heart. So, you know, that's that's a, a wonderful thing to to encourage people with. Um, but do you, um, what's your process like, Naomi? When you're writing, you know, when it's probably different now than it was then, I'm wondering also if your theater background helped you with structure and story arcs and understanding how to, how to shape a story and gave you a, you know, and also your journalism background gave you some, you know, a little bit of a head start on what this is. It's different, but it's, you know, the dramatic structure is dramatic structure. I think actually with the acting, it was more about putting myself out there. And that's Mm -hmm. probably been helpful for me today in just because so much of what we do is like doing podcasts and do, you know, doing dramatic readings or whatever. And I think it's, it's helped. And also just getting used to be on the stage, you know, because I'm sure for many writers, you know, you just, you're just at your computer. So I think that was good um, for that purpose. I think journalism was good for me um, just in interviewing so many people. And, you know, back then you had, we didn't have tra- transcribing program, you know, we're, we're transcribing ourselves and just listening to the cadence of how people speak. I think if people have problems with dialogue, um, you know, they should really try to transcribe, you know, certain interviews or try to, if you know, get permission 
from people. If you're doing, you know, uh, you're doing a story set in the South or with people with a particular, you know, speaking pattern, you know, get permission maybe to interview some people. I mean, it's so easy with Zoom and then to transcribe it and kind of mm-hmm. understand like the way I, I think knowing another language has helped me because you kind of um, see the structure of how people speak. I think that's been helpful um, in terms of right. You know, my writing process, um, it did help that first that I'm pretty self-disciplined just the fact that, you know, as a little kid, I'm like spending part of my summer writing, you know, that's kind of weird. And I think with <laughs> journalism, just that deadline, so helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends who are former journalists who are novelists now. So I think the the advantages of having that training is you're meeting all sorts of people, you're interviewing, mm-hmm. you know, I, I talk to pe- unhoused people, I talk to like, uh, you know, dissidents, political dissidents, the whole gamut. So um, that was very helpful, you know, just in terms of learning character. And I think the, um, yeah, the discipline, you know, I can't wait for the muse to hit me. I mean, I'm not so much wedded to, oh, okay, I need this space. I need this music or no music to write. Um, I think being a journalist, especially during that time, is I have to write under any kind of conditions. Sometimes I would have to go to like a court, you know, proceeding and then over the phone, like report my story. So, you know, I I think that's that's good. Um, That was very good for me um, to kind of break any requirements that I had to write. the the bad side or the disadvantages of that kind of journalistic training, especially back then, there was at least this, uh, <laughs> uh, we were supposed to be objective, you know, and, you know, that could be argued, is anyone really objective? But that was um, what we strove for. So I think sometimes, well, at least for me to kind of enter into one person's point of view to be very subjective, that was more of a challenge when it came to writing the book um, from a particular person's point of view. Um, But uh, yeah, today what my process is, and I think the pandemic um, was very difficult. Um, It was difficult for me just because I'm a pretty sensitive person. It was, I couldn't compartmentalize what was happening happening outside of my walls, you know? So mm-hmm. Clark and Division was due during the pandemic. I had written part of it beforehand, which was good. But once it came, you know, uh, the pandemic came, I knew I could not write my regular, you know, uh, word requirement, you know? So I was kind of kind to myself because there was, you know, no way out of it. Um, but you know, the sprints, the, I mean, I think sister, I will say, um, sisters in crime during the pandemic, especially was very helpful and all those programs, online programs you had, uh, and the, you know, 
people spoke about the Pomodoro method. So actually I, I've been meeting with another, um, she's a friend, but she's also a member of sisters in crime search and, um, you know, five days a week, we've been meeting like from eight to, you know, nine o'clock in the morning Pacific time and doing two sprints. That's great. And I think I just needed that push, you know, it's just like getting into the water, you know, sometimes um, it's kind of cold and you don't want to get in the water, but to just jump in in the morning and then to know after one hour, maybe you have, I don't write, you know, thousands of words. Some people do an hour, maybe I'll have 500 words, you know? So um, it's just like a release, like, oh, I have 500. So for me to, at least I have that. And for me to go on, I could build on that. That's much easier than not have written anything. And then it's about 11 o'clock and it's like, oh, I have to write something. You know, it's just a whole different approach. So that's helped me. And I've kind of, we've continued that. And um, yeah, and it's nice in this time where we don't have as much social interaction to have at mm-hmm. least one person, you know, and we, we do it through Twitter, believe it or not, uh, Twitter DMs and just check in with each other, you know, how was your weekend? How was life? You know, so just to have those like water cooler talks mm-hmm. that way, just in a few minutes, you know, has, has been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Writing is, is solitary, but it can't, it's not, you also need community and, and to have other writers who know what you're going through. Um, Clark and Division is a historical, uh, which I'm always amazed uh, by people who write historical novels because it's so much work <laughs> um, to pull that off. Um, and during a pandemic, you couldn't even go to Chicago and visit, you know, if that's part of your process. So talk to me about the difference and what drove you to take on this big project of writing this historical. You know, now that I think of it in hindsight, I mean, it makes perfect sense that I would write a book like this because I've written actually a lot of nonfiction books on, you know, related to this topic. Um, And I, as well as I really like the voice of a young woman, you know, in her 20s. And I've done some more, I've done some traditional novels. You know, there's a bicycle cop one, there's a, one set in Hawaii, and those two characters are 20-somethings. And I, I think the reason why, you know, I gravitate to either older or younger, you know, I've, I've said this before because I think those um, groups of people are often underestimated. But I think for the 20, I grew so much in my 20s, you know. Um, I, I shared some of my story just right now of going to a foreign country, uh, Japan and thinking you're going to be a lawyer and then deciding you're not going to do that. You're going to pursue writing, but how am I going to make money? And I think all those kind of decisions I made at that, in that particular decade really um, set the foundation for who I am today. You know, it's different for every person, but I think that's why I kind of love, um, that particular decade of the twenties. And, um, so in Clark and division, it's, yeah, it's history, but it's from a young woman's perspective, Mm -hmm. which is really 
fun for me and makes total sense. And um, so, you know, I think I, I, I approach historicals a little differently than maybe this, the kind of established like women's historical fiction. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. get, first of all, it was really important for me to write this in first person. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why is I just wanted to, I, I thought this is something I could bring to this particular story, a little more intimacy. And since, you know, I am Japanese American, although I had not been in, you know, experienced that, but I had spent all these time talking to people. So I, I felt pretty confident that I could enter into that mind, although it took time. It, mm. you know, and, and my editor, Juliet Grams, had to really work with me, to, you know. So, again, it wasn't instantaneous. So I think the, the first person POV, um, I feel, can bring a little bit of freshness, actually, to the historical, you know, a new so I'm not that concerned. Like I don't, I don't spend a lot of time like describing a button or, you know, I'm not good at a lot of physical description. So mm-hmm. to me, it's like more to get into the mind of this character in the '40s and how she feels about certain things. So that, so that's what I kind of leaned into, and that's what I would tell writers. Um, I don't think you know we're not we can't be good at everything, you know. So just figure out what gives what's easy for you to, you know, it may be physical description. So that, that world building is something you want to gravitate towards. But for me, it, um, it, it's more like the emotion. So that's Mm -hmm. something I feel like in all of my books, um, I want to grab hold of. I find it fascinating that when you were in your twenties, you wrote a male character in his 60s. And now that you're older, you're mm-hmm. writing a female character in her 20s. I'm just going to I just make that observation. I agree with you about your 20s. It's a huge time of growth and change. And it's a fascinating time to write characters because they're very present in their in their in their time. And, and you know, 1944 is, is quite a time to be a 20 something woman, um, you know, going through an experience like like she went through you know i i had problems um getting into my female voice and um i think there's a lot of reasons for that i i think i self-censored myself you know i i i think at that particular time and, and maybe that's why it took me so long to even you know finish a novel to the or get into shape to be published because I think there's certain vulnerabilities. I think we could have emotional blocks and that's something I mm-hmm. do talk about um, in some uh, writing workshops, even related to uh, Clark and division, because I think we forget that, you know, we just say, Oh, just imagine. And imagination is limitless, but on the other hand, we are human And the way we've been raised, the way we deal with adversity um, is very unique. And sometimes those kind of practices or, you know, quirks in our personalities or experiences 
could maybe blind us about certain mm-hmm. things. And I think for me, you know, being a kid of, uh, you know, uh, people, an immigrant mother and kind of serving as a parent, like for mm-hmm. her in a weird way, not financially, but I think those, you know, I couldn't let my guard down, you know, about certain things. And I think for each of us, you know, it's worth kind of looking at those kind of things because we may think in our books, because I think every, every reader wants some level of vulnerability. I don't care how, you know, action-packed, you know, a book is, you know, people still want a certain level of vulnerability or uh, emotional truth. Mm -hmm. It is important for us as writers to kind of, you know, take those walks or do a retreat, not only to get words on paper, you know, but kind of to do some kind of deep thinking, you know, and often it's people in our lives that kind of hint, you know, like, why are you like this? Why are you doing this? And we kind of push it aside, but maybe that's something we need to look at to um, infuse our books, you know, with a certain, you know, level of honesty that, that readers will be attracted to because they, they, they're like, they know that they also have those, failings but they don't really want to look at it but if it's especially in a novel it's easy you know so they feel emotionally connected but they don't have to reveal too much of themselves they could just say oh this was a really good book (laughs) well I agree with everything you said I also I you know I just want to honor that you are willing to mine some family trauma and and uh you know when you're talking about Hiroshima that's not a historical fact that's something their family uh dealt with and and you know that's not a one-time event that's a lifelong trauma that everyone deals with um and so you know you've got to take care of yourself while you're you're doing this work as well for sure and you know i think that's a gift you know from our younger people you know who who talk about self-care you know like uh (laughs) for a woman who you know, grew up in the seventies, you know, you you don't really think about that. That was not part of our vocabulary. Um, I think for me, um, definitely, you know, friendships have been very helpful. I, you know, I've gone through therapy myself. So, you know, for other purposes, so that was helpful. Um, I think, yeah. And one I th- superpower I think my parent parents have is uh th- they're they're both my I, we lost our uh my father you know, about 10 years ago but just a zest for life and a curiosity mm-hmm. and a sense of fun and humor so uh so I think that's the kind of things I lean on. I find a lot of things absurd. And um, I, when I was young, I, my sport is actually basketball, believe it or not. Um, I played um, in high school even. So just the absurdity of this under five feet woman playing basketball, you know, (laughs) it's like SJ Roseanne, right? I think it's like, this is crazy, you know? And I think there's a lot of things um, I'm not afraid to try anything, you know, and I, I think that's 
helped to sustain me and also to talk to people like, you know, I'm not feeling well. How can, you know, I was just, I, I love exercise. And I think also what's helped me is to always incorporate um, physical activity in my daily mm-hmm. routine. And I was telling friends, I can't go to the gym right now because of COVID. I was really, you know, going stir crazy. And they were going, oh, why don't you go to the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center? They have like, so I'm doing like old lady um, deep water aerobics, you know, and it's actually not just for old ladies, but, um, and it's absolutely fabulous. It's outdoors. Yeah. I live in LA, you know, and it's just such a joy because everyone's, you know, head is just bobbing up and down <laughs> the water and everyone has a big smile on their face. So you know, I'm glad I didn't let like, oh, that's not cool. I don't want to do anything right. that's not cool, you know, but just right. to be just open, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that certainly helped me. Yeah. Do you find that as you get older, you <clears throat> are, are less concerned with what's cool? Or have you always been like, I'm just going to do what I want to do? I, I, I'm pretty much, I'm just going to do what I want to do. You know, I think that's great. That's just, yeah, that's helped me, I think, over the years. So we talked about your writing journey um, and you've published many books. Tell, Let's talk about the publishing journey a little bit. Uh, you know, what surprised you about, about your publishing journey? I certainly, when I started it, I didn't think that it would take me 15 years. Um, yeah. And it was, you know, I think, so when I was starting to write like Amy Tan you know, had been such a success with Joy Luck Club. So I was thinking, oh, I need to find her agent, you know, and and approach her. So I kind of, I wasn't really thinking, well, what kind of things does she write about? And especially when it morphed into a mystery, does it make sense, you know? And um, and and during that, you know, when, when you queried in the 80s and 90s, I, I have it on a board somewhere because I used to do this, all my rejection letters. And I think it, you know, they would have these form postcards and then there would be a blank line and then they just write your name. In there. So that's how the rejections came, you know, and yeah. with no, so it was, so I had, you know, like queried like Amy Tan's agent and gotten one of those, you know, postcards or form letters and then I began to see this is like the wrong way to kind of look at myself as a writer. And especially when it morphed into a mystery, it's like uh, one, uh, one writer that I really loved was uh, Barbara Neely, um, who wrote about a, a black uh, maid actually in the South who solved crimes. And, you know, she was an underclass and Barbara was doing a lot of different. There was, a, you know, element of humor in there. Not that I'm that humorous, but there is a sense of play in some of my books. Mm-hmm. So especially the Masarai ones. So I found out who her agent was, you know, through reading the acknowledgements, you know, and the, we didn't have publishers marketplace or anything like that back then. And then, you know, um, set my manuscript in. It was, again, it took time. Uh, a, a junior agent um re- requested a full but it took like two months you know and back then we didn't do simultaneous you know submissions so it I just didn't think it would take so long and of course just like all other writers because 
um, Summer of the Big Bocce was picked up by Random House, Bantam, um, but it was a paperback original. And I didn't even know, I didn't know, I was very, I was not sophisticated. So I was like, what does that mean? You know? And um, yeah, so it, and it turned out that format was like the best format for me. I was writing um, idiosyncratic stories. So it would have to, it would take some time to find the readership. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, Julie, I've basically been a paperback writer, you know, until Clark and Division. I mean, some books were also published in hardcover for libraries, but I didn't really, con I don't consider them as straight hardcover yeah. releases. Yeah. So it's taken me, you know, like 18 years or something, eight, 17 years of being a paper, you know, my, my husband always would be singing paperback writer. <laughs> you would tease me. I go, yep, I'm a paperback writer. And finally, you know, I have a hardcover release. So yeah. it, it's taken a long time. Yeah. A hardcover release that was going to be a standalone was the original plan, but now is there's, you just finished the second uh, in book. It's, is that true? That is true. It's not a series. Um, I mean, it. I'm not going to keep writing from, the, the the second book is a sequel, um, and my uh, from the same protagonist point of view. Um, some things I'll be perfectly frank with you is like calculated business, um, mm -hmm. just because uh, series, you know, it, it it's an easier sell, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm talking about readers, you know. Yeah. So. Yep. They, you know, and the, and this is another thing, you know, to do a standalone gets, more, but ironically, a standalone gets more interest, like from mm -hmm. um, the press, from reviewers. Right. right. So, you know, to, we didn't know, I didn't, I only had a one book contract. So, you know, of course they said Clark and Division was a standalone, but I think in the back of people's minds, they said, well, if this is doing well, we're going to put another book out. Okay. So, you know, um, but I know, I knew that I didn't want to keep writing, you know, uh, books from Aki Ito. I, I felt her story could be contained in like two books. Mm -hmm. The second book takes mm -hmm. place in Los Angeles in 1946. So that particular story of kind of the resettlement of Japanese Americans back to the West coast is compelling. And I think it's worth another book. Um, mm -hmm. but we are branding. Okay. This is not, not pure business. You know, we're kind of branding a series, but mm -hmm. there's going to be other books from different characters point points of view. So not oh, quite exciting. a Tana French, not quite what she does, but kind of. Yeah. That's exciting. That's really exciting. Are you excited about that? I'm super excited. I have, like at least two other solid books I'm thinking outside of this next one that's coming out. But then I'm kind of worried, like what's going to happen? You know, I'm a planner. I will say this again, from a writer business point of view, I do journal. I have a, a writing journal, like I'm a book journal in which I, I journal, I think about, okay, what are, what are my projects for the next two years? 
I, in mm-hmm. the past, I've even done it for like 10 years, you know, just, and, wow. and things change. But the good thing about that is like for Clark and Division, I knew I wanted to write the Chicago book. So even though I was working on other projects, I made time to go to Chicago in 2000, I think 16. I went mm-hmm. in 2018 as well. So that was pre-pandemic. So, you know, I wished I could go again during the pandemic, but at least I had two solid research jobs. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm spinning a lot of plates at one time, but it's, but it's not that confusing because I've been journaling or thinking about what books I would like to work on, you know, even without a contract, like which ones we want to, I want to pitch. Yeah. That's wonderful advice for people to to dream, right? To to and write it down, make make it more tangible than just a thought in your head. Yeah, and it's not yeah. even dreaming; it's like planning because you have to do work. I mean, if you're doing a historical, you or even even if you're not doing a historical, like in my contemporary mysteries, there's still things I needed to research, right? Yeah, to incorporate. Yeah. No, it's great. Well, and Clark and Division's been a, a big book for you, and it's very exciting and to see, you know, it getting so many awards and acclaim and everything else. Um, it's uh, huge congratulations, but, you know, again, success isn't overnight for anybody. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I thought, actually, um, I was going to retire. <laughs> because being a paperback writer, I mean, it's... I, you know, I have to work on multiple um, projects at one time and it, it gets exhausting, you know, and yeah, I think pre-pandemic, just the marketing, you know, because I'm very cognizant. I don't want to spend all this money traveling on my own dime mm-hmm. and then be left with nothing. So, but it involves sleeping on a lot of couches and, you know, um, doing those kind of things. And it was like, oh, I think I'm too old to be doing this. <laughs> so, I mean, that that was something I was um, aware of as well. Well, one good thing that came out of the pandemic is things like Zoom, like the, you know, and now virtual events, I, I think, are going to exist outside the pandemic, which I think opens up a lot of opportunities for people to have conversations from different places and to participate. For sure. For sure. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, so are you are you working like a book a year now? I mean, will this Clark and Division series, I don't know what you're calling what the what the brand of the series is, but um are these a book a year projects or a book every 18 months or is this your primary focus right now? I'm hoping that it would it will be a book a year. And I think my publisher hopes that it will be a book a year. Um but another thing I've I've kind of started to do um, is doing nonfiction middle, like children's books that kind of came out of the pandemic. One of my former agents is now an editor at um, Running Press, um, which is a Hachette kind of imprint. So she asked me to do something in the pandemic and it was kind of crazy, but I did it. And now that's opened up another opportunity. So I'm Kind of also, I I kind of like having my foot a little bit in like two places, just because it's hard. I I understand publishers because I've, I also have, yeah, I, 
I under being an editor, I kind of understand a publisher's point of view. They have so many different writers, you know, it's not just me, you know, so they're going to have to divide their attention, you know, over a lot of different people. And so as a result, for me as a writer, I kind of like to have at least one kind of side gig so Uh that, you know, so that I don't pin all my attention. Oh, why hasn't my publisher contacted? Why hasn't my editor contacted me? It's like, well, I have these another project I have to focus on. So I think for my for my mental health, that's kind of helpful. And just exercising, you know, a different part of my brain is, is good and I will have to say really enjoy working with illustrators. Um, so that's been really fun. But yeah, my the whole I in terms of mysteries, I have uh, decided to focus my energies, you know, with um historical mysteries and um and I gladly do it. Um I'm kind of yeah. Yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. That's great. It's exciting for your readers to hear that for sure. Um, Naomi, thank you so much for a great conversation um, and a generous conversation because the writing and the business are are two different sides of what we do and, and it's important for people to hear about both. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.